Matthew chapter 1, we're looking at phrases or causes, Christmas causes, those saying those, those words and grouping of words from Scripture that capture the heart and the essence of what Christmas is. To help us in these days to keep our hearts and minds focused on Jesus and on what God is doing in the person of Jesus. I am glad that the truths of Christmas and the truths of Scripture are not merely just ideas. They are not just something that we can have traditions around. They are living, breathing truths that impact us every single day of our lives. You often hear the phrase, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the gift that keeps on giving. He is the gift that makes a difference in our lives 365 days out of the year, not just one select season out of the year. And we see this in so many of these wonderful Christmas phrases. I want you to see in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, I want to begin reading in verse 22. You're going to see a phrase, you're going to see a cause that is used frequently in this, this uh, narrative of Matthew 1 and 2 but then also throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's an important truth, and I think it will speak to us this morning. Now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The words I want you to focus on this morning, in the beginning of verse 22, that it might be fulfilled. This phrase will be used multiple times through this chapter and into chapter 2. It will be used throughout the Gospel of Matthew as Matthew seeks to affirm the person of Jesus Christ. That he is speaking of the truth of God, that God is truth. Sometimes we get a little creative with the truth. We tell the truth, we speak the truth, and we say what is true, but we do it in such a way that it, it, it some people call it spin. But you say things in just the right way. I learned this very early on when I was teaching school, and some of the students, um, would you had to learn to almost be a lawyer to catch all the way they would phrase things. You almost felt like I was, I was putting them under cross-examination. Uh, one year I kept finding over next to one student's desk, I kept finding coins. And I knew from the, the angle of the trajectory that I knew the other desk that they were coming from. And so I went to the student and I said, now, um, Rob, have you been throwing coins at Troy? No, sir, I haven't thrown any coins. And I knew by the way that he said it that there was something about the way he said throw. And it was just like the Holy Spirit just enlightened me. I said, um, uh, Rob, did you, did you thump those coins over at Troy? And he sort of smiled and he said, no, sir, I didn't thump any coins. I said, did you roll those coins at Troy? No, sir, I didn't roll those coins. Went through about eight or ten different verbs of projecting. And finally I got to the end, I said, did you flick those coins at Troy? And his head went down and he said, Yes, sir, I flicked those coins. I said, you could have just told me the truth. I was telling the truth. I wasn't lying. 
We get creative with the truth. We, we want to tell the truth. We want to be known as truthful, but we say it in just the right way. There's a great story of the pastor that went to the new town and new church, and as he got to this town, he discovered that there was two brothers that lived in this town. They were both very wealthy and both very wicked. And finally, one day after he'd been there, just a few weeks, one of the brothers died. And his brother, the, the living brother, came to him and he said, Now, Pastor, he said, in memory of my brother, I want to write a check to the church that will pay off the building program, tens of thousands of dollars. And the pastor said, Wow, that's very generous of you. Thank you for that. He said, There's just one requirement. He said, At my brother's funeral, in the eulogy, you have to say that he was a saint. And the pastor thought himself, he said, how can I do this? He said, I really, man, the church could really use this donation, but I, this man was wicked, he was vile. And so he got up at the funeral and he gave the eulogy and he said, this man before us today was an ungodly sinner. He said he was wicked to the core. He was crooked in his business. He was a drunkard. He was a liar. He was unfaithful to his wife and mean to his kids, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> See, you can tell the truth, but if you do it creatively. I'm glad that when it comes to God's truth, the Bible says in Romans 3, verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. I am glad that God in his nature is truth. In this passage before us this morning, that phrase that it might be fulfilled does two things. One, it is an affirmation of the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Matthew is writing to readers who will understand these, these things from the Old Testament that were pointing to the Messiah, and he is affirming in their hearts, look, this was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It affirms that Jesus is who he said he was. And I can stand before you this morning and tell you that the fulfillment of all that God had said about Jesus and about the Messiah, that Jesus is beyond a doubt who he said he was. Who he claimed to be is who he is. But it does something else as well. It also gives us the assurance of the promises of God. And we'll see that as we look at this passage. There's two things that are fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. The promises of God from the Old Testament are fulfilled in this passage. The first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 are the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we're often tempted in our reading of scriptures to overlook these genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And most of the time we can't remember the names. And if we do the names, we, if we can pronounce the names, we don't know who they are. And it just seems like there's a whole section that I can jump over and read something beyond. But this, this genealogy in particular is very important. It is inspired by God for the specific names that are chosen. Matthew does something unusual. The Holy Spirit inspires him. This does not include every single individual between Abraham and Jesus. But these are selectively chosen to emphasize two things. And there's two names that are given in the very first verse. In verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament 
promises in the covenants that God made with His people. We know that the covenants that God made were God's commitment to someone on behalf of their nation or on behalf of their family or on behalf of the individual. There's the Mosaic covenant that God would make with Moses with the people of Israel. There's the Adamic covenant that God would make with Adam and the entire human race. But there's also there's two particular covenants that are mentioned here. And there is linking them. This genealogy links Jesus Christ as the son of Abraham and the son of David. The Abrahamic covenant is the reminder that the Messiah would be the lamb. Abraham, on his way up the mountain, God will provide himself a lamb. And also the blessedness in the generations and the blessedness in the nations. Uh, through your descendants, through your seed, God said to Abraham, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is certainly true in a, in a practical way because the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, have been a blessing to nations all around this world where they are scattered. But Paul says in Galatians that that particular promise is speaking about Jesus, that it is in Jesus Christ, the seed, the descendant of Abraham, that nations of the world, all the nations will be blessed, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the blessedness, that's the promise that is given to Abraham. But then there's also the promise to David that reminds us that the Messiah will be a king. God said to David, I will put you upon the throne and your descendants will rule forever. We know there were times and there has been time in history, even now, when a descendant of David is not on the promises that God gave, they are fulfilled in the one who is the descendant. When Jesus was born, simply by existing, he was fulfilling prophecies. But not just the promises of the Old Testament, there are multiple prophecies. There are approximately 60-something prophecies fulfilled alone, just in Jesus Christ. And there are several of them in this chapter, and that's why... Matthew will say over and over that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. That's the, the phrase that we're looking at this morning. The Old Testament prophecies. The prophecy in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18 that the Messiah, that Christ would be the descendant of Abraham prophesied 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. Fulfilled in this genealogy. The prophecy that in Numbers 24, that the Messiah would be a descendant of Jacob, prophesied 1,500 years before, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that he would be born of a virgin and his name would be called Emmanuel, prophesied 750 years before, fulfilled in the verse we read this morning, Matthew 21, 22 and 23. The prophecy that a child will be born, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, 740 years before Christ came, but fulfilled here in Matthew chapter 1. The prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5, 2, is quoted and fulfilled in chapter 2 as the, as the scribes answer Herod 
and quote Micah to tell where the Messiah would be born. And Jesus being born in Bethlehem was the fulfillment of that prophecy that was given some 750 years before. The time of the Messiah's arrival from Daniel chapter 9, 600 years before it was fulfilled in the Gospels. Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the destruction of the children prophesied by Jeremiah, some 600 years is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And the prophecy that he would come out of Egypt from Hosea fulfilled 750 years later in the end of chapter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Time and time again that the prophecies would be fulfilled, that the, what was written by the prophets, by God through the prophets, might be fulfilled. Amazing and astounding. There is no other way to explain such fulfilled prophecy than that Jesus Christ was who He said He was. There are some things that you can do to fulfill a prophecy purposefully. You can find the prophecy, and then you can go out and you can set up events for it to take place. But not a one of us had a say in where we were born. Not a one of us got to choose. Jesus had no choice, and yet he was born in Bethlehem. All of these things of his, who he would descend from, all of these fulfilled prophecies, fulfilled and completed in Christ. I want, to get, I want to point us to three truths in this passage this morning that this phrase draws us to. And as I've studied this this week and over the last couple of weeks, God has poured, let me tell you, he has, he has quickened this truth to my heart, and I hope that he does to yours as well this morning. The first is it shows us the source of these promises, the source of truth. He says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord, by the prophets. Who is, who is the agent here? The way that it is worded is, is pointed for us to understand this is not just about the intermediate agent. This is not focusing on the prophet. It is speaking about the ultimate agent of expression, the ultimate communicator. It is reminding us that this source of truth, this source of promise is God Himself. God is by His very nature truth. Saying that God is truth extends beyond saying that what God says is truth and that He is the source of truth. We're saying its very source is in His nature. His nature is truth. Boy, that's so important in our day and time. When everyone wants to base, their, base truth on what they feel or what they think, or what society says, or what the law says. But let me tell you that what is legal is not always moral. And what is accepted by society is not always right. All of those things can change, and I could point you, your minds could go this morning to instances in history when society has said something is acceptable, and we clearly understand from Scripture and from plain morals that it was wrong. And we can look at things that were legal, and we can understand that it was clearly an immoral act, but it was legal because those who made the laws. Laws change, societies change, but the nature of our God is an unchanging standard of truth of what is right and what is good and what is true. That does not change. 
means that all that God does is true and God determines what is right and what is good. You see, we like to, we like to justify and we like to base, well, I, yeah, this is just the way I feel about it. This is what I think. That truth, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. That is a dangerous road for us to pass down. But I'm glad that I can lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that what is right and what is true does not, it is, it is as unchanging as the nature of God himself. The source of this promise, the source of truth is God. Now be very careful because we can do what some people call, we can live as functional atheists. We can claim to believe that God exists and yet live as if he does not. And that happens when we try to make ourselves the final arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. When we do that, we are taking God from his position of authority and his position of right and his position of truth, and we are saying, I am going to sit on this throne. I'm going to determine by what I'm comfortable with and what I like and how I'm persuaded and how I feel, and I'm going to determine what is truth. And when we do so, we may profess to believe in God, but we are acting as if we do not. God is the source of truth. But this phrase also reminds us not just the source of our promises, but the surety of these promises. God's promises are sure. The Bible says that His Word will not return void but it will accomplish all that he sends it out to do. I love when God speaks in the scriptures and in history, when God has spoken, it comes to pass. God said, let there be light, and the rest of the verse says, and there was light. God said, let there be this, and it happened. He spoke. He took from nothing and created all that is. That's an amazing thing. Some of you are pretty creative people. I've seen some of the things that you've created, and I'm not talking about the confusion and mess that some of, some of us create. But we take something and we create from that. God took nothing and created all. That's the power of our God. That's the surety of His promises. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, the, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Our, his promises are sure. Let me ask you this morning, what promise do you need to claim for the situation that you're in? We talk about the promises of God, and we know that they're sure, and yet when it comes down to it, do we rest in His promises? Do we claim His promises? They are sure. This, here's what's amazing. What God has promised and prophesied seemed impossible. A virgin shall conceive and be with child. How impossible does that seem? It just doesn't make any sense from a natural scientific standpoint how this could happen. But when God, who is the one who created all, 
If God is who God is, then nothing is impossible with God. That's what the angel said to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. We may not be able to understand it. We may not be able to explain it. But God is one who is all-powerful. And what He says and promises that may seem impossible, my God is able to do. Because nothing is impossible with Him. So then when I look at the promises I claim, and my situation may to me seem impossible, and I may look at what I'm praying for, and it may seem impossible, and I may look at what I'm expecting and what I'm trusting God for, and it may seem impossible, but the God that we serve, the God that we know and understand and receive through His Word and through His promises, that God is able to do the impossible. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Whatever we can imagine, God is able. So God can do the impossible. He can bring a human being into this world in a miraculous way. And the same power of God that brought those promises to pass is the power that is at work in your life and my life. And we can trust in the surety of God's promises. And that brings us to the strength of these promises. That nothing is impossible with Him. What does God promise to do? Let me remind you of some of the promises of God. And maybe one of these is a promise that you need to claim this morning. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. I am with you always. Even to the end of of the age, to the end of the world. That's a promise. Now, that promise is linked with two things, faith and obedience. Faith to trust God, obedience to do what God requires of us. That promise that He will be with us always is coupled with our obedience to His commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always. That goes with that. As we are going to obey, God is with us. And we have the promise of His presence. We have the promise that He is with us. He is Emmanuel. He was Emmanuel when He came to this earth and He was born in that manger. But He is Emmanuel with you this morning when you're sitting there and you're surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ, but in your heart you feel so excluded. You feel like you're alone because no one knows what you're going through. God is with you promise of his provision my god philippians 4:19 my god shall supply some of your need no that's that's doesn't say some does it my god shall supply all your need how according to his riches in glory let me tell you that god has got more of what you need than you need let me say that again God has got more of what you need than you need. He is able to do, he goes beyond. 
anything that I need. And we often claim that verse, my God shall supply all your need. We claim that verse thinking of material possessions and finances, and God does provide those needs. But let me tell you that there are needs in your life and in my life that far exceed monetary value, and if you put a monetary value on it, you could not afford it, and I could not afford it. But God is the one who provides for that deepest need. So it doesn't matter this morning. Maybe maybe somebody could write you a check for $10,000 and it wouldn't be what you needed because it's not money that you need. Maybe it's peace. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's calmness. Whatever the need is, my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory. God's purpose, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them who are called, who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. You know this. I've said it. You've heard it. You've read it. You've heard others say it. It does not say all things are good, but it does say God works all things together for good. There are things in your life that you cannot look at and say this is a good thing. But God can take those things that are not good things and He can work them together. By themselves they are not good. By themselves they are painful. By themselves they are hurtful. By themselves they are often caused by sinful actions of ourselves and others. But God can take them and work them together for our good. That is a promise. And I tell you that we can claim, I claim that promise Maybe more often than any other promise I can think of. Why? Because I know that God is at work. The promise of prayer, 1 John 5, 14. We know that if we ask anything according to His will, there's the the, the, the provision to it, He hears us. If we ask, He hears. I'm glad, because there are times... Have you ever, you've heard people say this, maybe you've said it. I just don't feel like my prayers are getting through the ceiling. You ever prayed and you just feel like the heavens were brass? You just, your prayers, I have the promise of God. So it doesn't matter how I feel about my prayers. God hears. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's not me telling you that. That is what God has said to us. It is His word. It is His promise. The promise of His peace. Philippians 4, 7. As we are praying and giving things to Him, the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There are many people that need that promise. They need God to speak peace to them. They are disturbed. They're disturbed about their situation in life. They're disturbed because in this season of the year, in a time when many people are joyful and celebrating, it's not always the most joyful time of the year for folks. There are people who are missing loved ones. There are people who are separated physically from loved ones. There are people who are separated emotionally. They're in conflict, and they would love to be restored and celebrating together with their families, and they're not able to because of personal conflict. 
There are those who are going through great trials and there are burdens. There are those who are carrying anxiety and fear and worry and burden. And God has said, I will bring peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And that's the promise that you need to anchor into and you need to trust and you need to believe because the God who promised will do what He said He will do. He is the God of truth and it might, it will be fulfilled. Do we doubt these promises? The same promises of what seemed impossible in the birth of Christ are backed by the power of God that makes all things possible. So this phrase, this, this promise, this statement, that it might be fulfilled, this happened so that it might be fulfilled, tells me that God is at work, His purpose is orchestrating what is taking place in order to fulfill His promises, and it does those two things. First of all, it is an affirmation of the person of Christ that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That Jesus came because we are sinners, and that's what's wrong with this world. The greatest need is not education, though education is a wonderful thing. The greatest need is not giving to the poor, though it is good for us to give to those that have need. The greatest need is salvation from our sins. And God sent His Son to provide the way. That's, his, that's the fulfillment of what God is doing. It is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And today, let me tell you, you may have a lot of problems and a lot of needs in your life. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's the greatest need. And God has promised, God has provided in Jesus Christ. And in the fulfillment of that promise, in the fulfillment of that prophecy, Jesus Christ is the yes and amen of God to that promise. And salvation is offered to you today by simply trusting in Him as your Savior, repenting of your sins, saying, God, I am sorry that I am a sinner. I recognize I am a sinner I cannot save myself, but I know that in Jesus Christ, salvation is offered and I receive what you offer. That's the affirmation that Jesus is who he said he is. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, this, this phrase also is the assurance of God's promises. The assurance of God's promises. What promise of God are you claiming for your current situation? What promise have you gone to and said, God, this is your word. This is what you have promised. I'm going to claim it because I know it will be fulfilled. To claim that promise from him. Let me ask you this. Do the people around you know more about the problem you're facing than they do about the promise that you're claiming? Do the people around you know more about the problem you're facing than the promise you're claiming? We're quick to talk about our problems and share that with everybody. But what if we shared, this is the promise of God. This is the promise of God that I'm holding on to, that I have set my anchor in. 
And they would know more that we are trusting God than that we are experiencing the storm. Just do the people around you know that promise? And then I would ask this question. Do you have faith that God will fulfill that promise? Do you believe that God will fulfill that promise? This happened that it might be fulfilled. I don't know what everybody's going through this morning, but I will tell you this. Every one of us, every one of us at this moment in our lives need to anchor into a promise from God. And there is a promise. Someone has counted and they said there's thousands of promises in the Word of God and he's never failed on one of them. But there's a promise for the situation that we're in. Claim that promise. Rest in that promise. Experience that promise and trust God to keep his promise. And there will be a day when you will say this happened so that that might be fulfilled. Father, in this moment, I believe that there are those that need to kneel before you. They need to kneel in your presence and claim a promise. There's a situation that's greater than they are. They're feeling the pressure, the feeling the fear, the anxiety. They're feeling the burden, and they need to rest in your promises. Father, there are those who have been claiming promises for a long time, and they may be tempted to give up and and throw in the towel and say, what's the use? It's never going to happen. Maybe this morning, Father, as you speak to them, they need to come and reclaim that promise. Whatever the need might be, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in us. Give us that assurance. May we rest in that assurance.